I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Undercurrents. I'm Agnes Frimston. Hello, Ben. Hi, Agnes. How are things? All right, thanks. How are you? Feeling good. I'm very well, thank you. It's been nice to be able to get outside a bit, a bit more than we have been as, as these restrictions are starting to ease a little. Yeah, it's warm as well, isn't it? It is. It's been warm. Hot. Have, you had a, have you had a beer in the park yet or an ice cream? I've had both Ooh. and uh, it's just been a dream, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. What's your ice cream of choice? My ice cream of choice is anything that is mint choc chip related, yeah. I would say. That's my... Why is it such a good ice cream? It just is, isn't it? <laughs> it just it doesn't make any sense for anything that luridly green to be good, but it is. It's just too much, but it's just so good. But you were out as well, I saw I saw on Twitter, out and about in the park. Yeah, I managed to meet one person that was lovely. We did the crossword, just like normal old times. <laughs> um, but I'm out of practice, that's what I would say. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. What's happened this week? Uh, the World Today has a new issue out which is online now, with the lead cover story written by our lovely colleague Marjorie Boucher on whether the pandemic is impacting democracy. More cheery stuff, Ben, more cheery stuff. More cheery stuff. And I'm afraid that I can't bring anything particularly positive. We're not we're not covering Eurovision this week. Say, you... what, would you tell us a bit about what's going on? Yes, absolutely. So this week we've got... Something very different from things that we've covered before. We're going to be talking to two researchers who have just published an article for International Affairs looking at kind of family relations and the politics of family relations in Uganda and particularly looking at this group of children who were born during the Ugandan Civil War which raged for many years and has flared up many times over over the years. But this group of children who were born to fathers who were part of the militia groups that were the sort of rebel groups that were part of the war, often in circumstances where the women were forced to marry or forced to have sex with these men. And it's about the experiences of those children now that they're growing up, but also about the fathers and whether there can be a role for them in some kind of reconciliation process, whether whether these fathers can be can be reunited with their children, whether there is scope for them to play a part in their lives. Um, so listeners may be familiar with the Ugandan civil war that raged for many years and particularly with this rebel group, the Lord's Resistance Army or Lord's Resistance Movement, which we talk about a lot in the interview, who were a group that has been designated a terrorist group by the United States and more broadly has been implicated in a lot of human rights violations and basically violent activity. And remind me, were they linked to Kony? They were. Their leader was was Joseph Kony. Because there was a huge amount of press about him and, and the kidnapping of the schoolgirls a few years ago now. So if our listeners have heard of Tony, they might have, you know, this is who we're talking about. Yes, exactly. And and so then these researchers carried out some pretty extensive field work with the help of a lot of, of local activists in Uganda on the ground 
talking to people who had previously been members of the Lord's Resistance Army and also the children that they were supposed to be responsible for. That sounds really interesting, but maybe a little bit harrowing in places. Definitely, there are some some really, really difficult messages and difficult experiences that these researchers are talking about. And it does involve content of a sort of sexual violence nature. And so just be warned. It's fascinating and and really important. I think that we cover these sorts of things, but it's not for the faint hearted necessarily. Yeah. So Um, if you think this might might hit you particularly hard maybe at the moment perhaps have a pause and go back and listen to one of our other ones and come back at a later date but yeah but i think we should have a listen let's have a listen okay so we're back and today I'm really delighted to be joined by Erin Baines and Camille Oliveira, who are from Canada. Very exciting. All the way across the Atlantic. I'm loving this Zoom process that now means we can talk to anyone anywhere. Erin, Camille, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you Thanks for having us. So Erin and Camille are both based at the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs at the University of British Columbia. And in the March issue of International Affairs, they co-authored an article titled Children Born of War, A Role for Fathers, which looks at the experiences of children and fathers implicated in the aftermath of the civil war in Uganda. So I guess let's just begin with terms. Erin, this idea of children born of war, what does that mean? Yeah, it refers to children who are conceived as the result of sexual violence and sexual exploitation by soldiers against civilian women, either during a conflict or a military occupation. Uh, Most children's social status lies somewhere between the victimization of the mother and the perpetration of the father. So they may become these very painful memories for the mother or regarded with anger and fear by a community who are affected by the war and the war violence perpetrated by the father. And as a result, they experience social isolation and a sense of never belonging. I'll give you a couple of small examples. You might think about the Vietnam War, where tens of thousands of children were born to Vietnamese mothers, fathered by American soldiers. Mm-hmm. And these children, because of how they looked and who they were, were discriminated against and very often pushed into the streets where they lived and were referred to as void doy or dust of life, referred to as vagrants. Another example, we might think of Yazidi women who were captured and forced to marry ISIS soldiers. Mm-hmm. And they, are, they have this terrible choice that if they escape and come back to Iraq, they must give up their children to orphanages or not come back at all. So these are children who are are born from rape and their lives tend to be defined by or shaped by that circumstance of their birth. Does that term, is it an academic term or or is, is it a legal status? It's more a term coined by a social movement that we're trying to bring attention to what is otherwise a hidden victim group. So the women's movement to bring attention to rape as a crime of war or a war crime really focused on the female victims of the war and Mm -hmm. very little attention was ever afforded to children born out of that situation. 
So when we, when they looked for legal redress, it was always for the survivor. But the harms the child endured were not quite recognized. Um, so it was a term that was coined in order to bring attention to the challenges these children face as they grow up and to recognize them as a particular victim group who also need uh, some kind of justice. Camille, Erin touched there on some of the challenges facing these children, but could you maybe unpack that a bit more? What are the main areas of concern when we're talking about these experiences? Yeah, for sure. So the main areas of concern really stem from the effects of carrying this label, born of war, and how that impacts every facet of their lives, really. So they impact their relationship with their mother, their relationship with the father and the community, and even their perception of themselves. So if you think about Children born of war and their mother, for example, they have very troubled or detached relationships because you can imagine for the mother, that child is a living reminder of the violence that she endured. So there are cases where they suffer child abuse. There are cases where the mother attempts to, to kill the child because of what they represent. And they, they're a reminder of the war, not only for the mother, but also for the community that they live in. So they can feel like a scapegoat to a lot of people's pain, a lot of people's anger. And, and so they're socially excluded, you know? So they're called children born of hate or children born of evil or little killers. If even in places meant for socialization, so in a playground, other parents from other children won't allow them, their children to play with children born of war. At school, they might be singled out by teachers. So they have this experience of social ex being socially excluded. They are also overwhelmingly have lower access to social services. They're less likely to finish education and live at the margins of society below the poverty line. And you can think about the psychological effect that that has on the child. So they're more likely, again, to live with anxiety or depression, and they have to live with the guilt of knowing that their fathers are perpetrators of this crime and knowing that the same act that gave them life is the act that has brought so much suffering to the mother. So they live with that guilt. And so they have to navigate society while carrying the weight of this label. And that marks them from the moment that they're born for the rest of their life. We've already touched on a couple of examples, but the article that you wrote for International Affairs looks particularly at the situation in Uganda. So Erin, could you tell us a bit about why Uganda was the focus for you and what is the context to the article? Sure. Well, I actually began researching in northern Uganda around 2004, which was the height of the, the war, a 30-year-old war, and working largely in collaboration with women who had survived abduction and been forced into marriage. The war was fought between the government of Uganda and the LRA. And civilians really became the pawn in that fighting. And they endured atrocities from both sides, from all sides. But one of the most notorious military strategies of the LRA was to abduct young children. And some of those children were as young as 10 years old. And they were forced to labor for the rebel group and eventually trained to become fighters on their behalf, including being forced to perpetrate violence against the civilian population, as well as to abduct other children. When young girls came of a certain age, 
they would be forced into marriages with LRA commanders. And in that way, they provide domestic labor. But it was also for the purpose of, of giving commanders children. It's estimated between two and 6,000 children were born to LRA commanders throughout the war. When the war came to an end around 2008 in northern Uganda, although it continued in the Democratic Republic of Congo when the LRA fled there. But when the war came to end after a failed peace talk, many of the women and children escaped or were released and came back to northern Uganda. And when they did, you know, it's, it's very it's difficult to listen to their stories because they had been abducted and lived with the hope of always coming home. But they would come home to a series of really painful questions like, well, what did you do to survive out there? Why did you survive? And my kid didn't survive. In other words, what did you do? How were you complicit with the rebels? I remember one person asking me, you know, it's almost like they think we went out there willingly and they forget that we were also abducted, you know, and this was not our choice to be a part of this rebel group. Now, given that complicated, difficult and strained relationship, the government had passed an amnesty uh, in hopes of attracting more persons to come home and to live peacefully with the community. So an amnesty was passed and there was a sort of blanket forgiveness that was promoted, but there was no form of settling accounts. So in other words, without the sort of public dialogue or public recognition of what had happened, the scars really remain open in Northern Uganda today with those who were abducted and came back, the scapegoats for blame. Absolutely. Then, I believe, was it between 2016 and 2019, you conducted research investigating the experiences of of these people. Could you tell us a bit about how you approached that? Sure. I mean, conducting research with demobilized men in a precarious post-conflict setting is not an easy task. (laughs) (laughs) Men are constantly being surveilled within their communities by government operatives because there's always a fear they may remobilize. And, and the men in the communities are constantly aware that they're being surveilled and they have in the back of their mind, there could be a moment for retaliation. You know, a number of them were told when they came back, you just wait for the day when we round you up and get back. So there's that presence, heavy presence. Because of the fear they might remobilize, they're only allowed to meet in very small groups, which means you can't conduct like focus groups discussions with them. They have limited mobility, which means you have to go to their homes. And they have a high distrust of foreigners because of the International Criminal Court's investigation into the Lord's Resistance Army. So they're also a little bit worried that we might be approaching them to get information for the International Criminal Court. So we have all those fears that they hold. I was lucky enough, and I have been fortunate enough, to work for many years with the Women's Advocacy Network, which is composed of five or 600 female survivors of abduction. And they all know this community of men quite well. And it was actually after a long period of research with them when we tried to study what were the women's perspective of the war, what did they experience during the war, that they had talked to me about collaborating on a new project, this project, which would get the men's perspective. So 
by being able to work with them and they being known by the men, we were able to build slowly trust. It took three years to do this research with a group of 20 men. And we let, we sort of surrendered that research process to the men and to our collaborators within the Women's Advocacy Network so that they could, they went at like a very slow pace. You know, they would meet, visit, come back six months later, meet, talk about it again, really establish the relationship. And eventually the men who had been reluctant to speak, we found we couldn't get them to stop speaking. You know, so in some cases, we ended up taking nine different one-hour recordings from the same man because he kept asking us to come back again. Uh, so we let them determine where, when, the pace, how often they wanted to meet. And in that way, I think we developed in them a confidence that they could share more intimate things with us, which when you, you want to get a man's perspective of the war, in particular of questions related to fatherhood, which is what we were also interested in, they could open up. So Camille, I was just wondering if you could give us a bit of a sense of the main findings that you guys took from these conversations. Sure. Yeah. I'll focus on, on the children and the experiences of, of children in Northern Uganda. And we found that they share some of the same experiences of children born of war around the world. So they suffer stigma because of who their fathers are and what they represent. So when they return with their mothers to the maternal clan, the maternal clan many times says, I don't want to provide for a child whose father belongs to a rebel group that inflicted so much pain on the community. So they don't want to provide that that becomes a difficult situation. And also the children are perceived to inherit the father's violence or a propensity to act in a violent way. So they're watched very carefully as well around the community and any misstep, any misbehavior is blamed on the fact that they are children born of war. So they have to pay attention to everything they do to avoid that scrutiny. And the community is also fearful of children born of war because they're suspected of being haunted by the war dead. So there are cases where people say that they're scared to sleep at night if they know there's a there's a child born of war in their community because they're scared that that child might go and kill them. So there's that fear as well. And we need to think about the context. You know, there's been... A, a war for decades. And so there's very little economic opportunity. So taking care of these children is a strain and is a burden for the family. So with limited resources, the children are usually the first ones to suffer. So if there's not enough money to pay for for schooling, they'll be the first ones to be taken out of school. If there's not enough food for everyone, they'll be the last ones to eat if there's anything left for them. They will be overworked in the fields and not allowed to go to school. So they're the first ones that, that suffer from that lack of resources. And another important part about children in a Choli culture is that a Choli society is a patrilineal society. So when a woman gets married to a man, she'll go and move into his clan. And that's where they have their children. And that's where they raise their family. And when I'm talking about the paternal clan, I'm not talking about just a nuclear family, not just mother, father, and child, but also grandparents, 
elders, uncles, cousins, and it's a whole familial network that is supposed to provide the place for the child to grow, for the child to learn the traditional teachings of the clan, where they learn the history of their ancestors. They live in the, in the ancestral land. So it's belonging to a paternal clan that will give them their sense of identity and who they are. There's a saying in it, truly, that says, if you take the child to the maternal clan, that child will cry until they return back home. And home is always refers to the paternal clan because that's where the children are thought to belong. So children born of war, they return and they go to the maternal clan and they don't have that sense of belonging. They don't have that, that sense of identity. And they also don't get any of the benefits of living with a paternal clan. So for example, for boys, they're supposed to inherit land. So when they get married, they have a place where they're going to raise their family. For girls, the whole clan comes together to provide the dowry for the girl when she gets married. So they don't have that support network. And one of the consequences of this is that, especially as they get older, they're out on their own, they're living in poverty, suffering from physical and mental health issues. And a number of respondents say that they've heard of children who attempted to commit suicide because they weren't able to imagine a better situation for themselves. They weren't able to imagine a better future. They had no one to rely on. So they resorted to this drastic action as the only way out for them because they didn't have that support network and extended family. It's a complicated picture. Erin, did you get a sense that the fathers that you were speaking to understood the kind of implications of that and the lack of support network that these children had? And did you get a sense also that they wanted to be more involved? Yes. The, the fathers that we interviewed expressed to us memories of their children and an emotional connection to their children that they did not have with anyone else. These children had been come very dear to them precisely because of the suffering they had gone through together during the war. That when they had children in the war, it transformed their understanding of it. Many felt a primary thing to then do was to fight in order to protect the women and children rather than to fight to overthrow the government. And so a number of respondents also talked about the decision to release the women and children with the hope of rejoining them later. I remember it was a long war. You know, and by the mid-2000s, the IRA were losing it. And many women and children were being killed in gun battles or by bombs that were being dropped. And a lot of men lost their morale. So when they released, their hope for the future was that at least their children would grow up and know who they were. And they would know who they were by going to the paternal clan. And if they couldn't, if they had to die, let them at least die from home. This really flies in the face of what is a common perception in northern Uganda or amongst the international advocacy community that most men who forced women into marriage with them in the LRA saw them as just disposable, you know, that they and their children were disposable. It might be the case sometimes that men, you know, returned and wanted nothing more to do with 
the women and children that they were with, but it's not always the case. And we were interested in like when it was not always the case. In fact, what we found was that a number of fathers had attempted or at least wanted to assume the care of their children and bring them home, but they faced so many obstacles in doing so. You know, one was you have to remember that the men themselves were like the children, extremely stigmatized and thought to be threats within the community. I met one man who had lived in uh, in a community with the wife he had been given in the LRA and their children very peacefully for 15 years. And he said, still to this day, he can go to the market or to the well and be called a killer, you know, called some kind of name. That carried on and lived with him, like that perception. And that perception then is shared by the families of of the mothers to their children. And so most women returned with the mothers to their children to their own families, where they were raising their own families. And when men approached those clans and said, I would like to have a relationship with my child, they were told flatly, go away. You know, you, you did this to my daughter. You did this to me. We want nothing to do with you. These children now belong to us, right? And so that's retaliation. It's a refusal. It's a, that's, that's the first obstacle that they really face. Now, there are cultural protocols in Northern Uganda, indigenous cultural protocols that can be employed and used to resolve conflict between clans and they can be used to mediate and settle, uh, settle an account and come to an agreement, one that usually involves like a compensation that would be paid to the injured parties. But that requires the willingness of both parties to come to the table and agree. And men often found that they, because they were ostracized in their own families, they had no one to stand in for them, or it was really difficult to approach and get that dialogue started. But in addition, those those mediations and the compensation that follows, as well as uh, there's a number of cleansing rituals that can be performed to help facilitate a, a reconciliation, they're expensive, right? They cost a lot of money. And so you have a group of fighters who were abducted and lost their entire primary, no chance at secondary education. Mm. They only really have one skill, fighting, right? So... They have a difficult time finding employment. They might be living on a small margin of land at home, uh, but they're struggling, right? And they're struggling to raise uh, funds to be able to say, I can take care of these children. I'll give you an example of Luchura. Luchura had a wife and two children in the Democratic Republic of Congo with whom he was in constant contact. So remember, the LRA moved into the Congo at some point, and he had a wife and child there. When he left them, it was with the agreement between himself, his wife, and her clan that he would, once he paid a compensation to them, she could follow him to Uganda and raise the family there. Now, I met him one day after he had had like a visitation with his wife and child, which had been facilitated by an international NGO. They actually flew his wife and children to meet him, right? Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I had met him just after he had a chance, after a long time, to see them again. And he's like, Aaron, can you imagine what it was like for me to have my son in my arms? And then 
that child was ripped out of my arms and I don't know when I'm going to see him again. And then you think about the resentment of all the parents in the community that they have towards him because it was the LRA or someone like him who had also abducted their children, ripping them from their arms and they haven't seen them again. And right there you see perfectly summarizes the complexity of fathers trying to reunite with their children. Obviously, you said that a lot of the existing research on on issues related to this is done from the perspective of of the women who often have been the victims of of the violence that has created these situations. But I just wondered whether, despite the fact that you wanted to tell the story of the men who were involved in this, I wondered if you had any insight on how the mothers of these children felt about the role that these men could play in their children's lives. Remember that this research was done over a period of three years and it involved researchers who had been survivors themselves and who worked through their network of other survivors in order to identify the fathers. So in general, they expressed a recognition that father's involvement in a child's life could be desirable or of his plan in the child's life could help with a a sense of belonging or economic need. But This was also contingent upon the relationship they might have had to the father of their children during the war. It could have been a very violent one, could have been an ambivalent one, or they might have, through their shared experience, become quite close to especially the birth of their children. So it really varied as you would expect it would across a population of survivors. I think the One thing, though, that a number of women talked about is going back to the moment their child asked them about their identity, who was my father. And in this context where belonging to a paternal clan is so important, many women felt being able to answer that question for their children is what drove them forward to be more open to their fathers either being involved in their children's lives or of his clan. Yeah, absolutely. So... Camille, I just thought it would make sense at this point to to move to what you think should be the kind of policy implications of what you found. Obviously, a a lot of these are sort of case by case. There are so many different, there's so much variety to the experiences of these people. But there does seem to be some continuity in terms of particular areas that Erin was just touching on there. So what do you think ought to be the kind of policy implications of this research? And who needs to be involved in protecting these children and the rights of their fathers? We need to think historically, ever since rape has been considered as a, a war crime, that policy has focused on the mothers, and, and rightfully so. But they focus on the mothers and the challenges they have in raising their children, and the children kind of become obscure, obscured in that discourse. And it's only been recently that they've been recognized as a particular victim group, separate from their mothers. So for example, in the, in the UN in 2018, recognized children born of war as a particular victim group. And so you, you have a discourse that's forming around children born of war in a conversation. And so when you're setting this conversation, we're not saying that the rights of the fathers necessarily need to be protected, but it's asking 
if there's a role for the fathers and whether that's more beneficial for the children, we want children to be the at the center and, and their lived experiences to be at the center. And so taking into account the dynamics and the relationships that are important to the child and who can help secure the well-being of that child. So when you're questioning how to seek justice for the children and what is in the best interest of the child, we need to expand this discord to potentially consider the roles that the father could take. Not that every single father has the right to, to have a relationship with their child, but that there could be a role mm. and that could be a consideration. And that leads me to my second point that when you're setting this agenda around children born of war and their victimization and how to seek justice for them, if you leave fathers out, there's no expectation that they take responsibility. There's no precedent that they, they need to contribute to the child's well-being. So you're essentially leaving it up to them to decide whether or not they want to. You're leaving them off the hook. So we're looking at the cases of fathers because we want them to be accountable for the children that they fathered. And if you leave fathers out, you're not punishing the father on the basis that they're perpetrators. You might actually be punishing the child because you think about the context of great poverty and post-conflict turmoil, the consequences of not including the father, of not allowing the father to take that responsibility might be a question of life and death for the child who may not be receiving proper nutrition, proper education, and may not have any other means for livelihood. And then you think about, you ask about key stakeholders. Well, these fathers belong to, to nations' armies. They belong to UN peacekeeping forces. So we need to think about the role in these institutions in enforcing this accountability. So you have seen, ex there's examples of women in Peru who went to the army and, and demanded and requested that they provide compensation on behalf of the fathers to help these mothers raise the children fathered by soldiers. So either if that's uh, one, one sum that's given to the mother or whether that's docking the pay of, of these soldiers, you, you have this precedent in Peru and maybe that could be expanded on a global scale. And again, I want to reemphasize that through this research, we want children to be at the center and to consider what is beneficial for the child without limiting who we think deserves to have a role in, in raising this child. And the content that you're talking about, obviously it's so personal and so sensitive. When you're dealing with that sort of information and those kind of relationships, were there particular, I guess, almost like ethical concerns that you had? And how did you mitigate those? Yeah, definitely. Having worked with the women for so long I had, and with populations affected by the war and particularly survivors of LRA crimes, I was extremely hesitant to speak to these men. And I continue to struggle with the question, like, was I listening to the side of the per perpetrator and betraying the victim? I understand that they themselves are complex victims, right? They were abducted and they have complex relationships with the mothers and their children, but I couldn't help but think about, well, what don't I know? So they shared these intimate stories and some were heart-wrenching. Some of them lost entire family 
during the war, fighting the war to helicopter gunships. Heart-wrenching story. But on the other hand, you know that many people lost their loved ones because of the LRA. So it was like sympathizing with those who were implicated in the loss of so many other people. But then I also began to ask like, well, what's my bias here? How, uh, why I felt that way, a reluctance to speak to the men, but not to the women I had worked with for so many years. Because the women also fought, right? They also picked up guns and, and fought and attacked civilian populations. So why did I judge one one way as a, as a complex victim and not, and not the others? Now, sometimes I encounter in my, in my work when I present it, the argument that I have like an agenda that I'm against retributive justice for survivors of sexual violence and that they so deserve. But I also have to stand back and ask myself, like, what do victims want? Do they not have a choice in what kind of justice they want to pursue? And might that be, you know, seeking responsibility from the father? So don't they have agency to work within these very patriarchal structures and look for justice for their children? And then I have to also ask myself, who am I to judge the answer to those questions? I often start a talk on this subject by stating, as I have done here, it was the women who told me to do this research project, to speak Mm -hmm. to the men. But I often think I start with that statement because I'm trying to hide behind them to justify this choice. So those are, those are many of the ethical dilemmas. And I'll just end with one thing. You know, after completing the project, I went back to visit each male participant and get their feedback on the project. And I often ended, do you have any questions for us? And the last question I was asked by a senior commander was, well, now you've spent all this time listening to us, hearing our stories. What do you think of us? And it was a question that haunts me. What did you say? I, I struggled in the way that I, I, just, uh, I just did. You know, I had to say to him, I, I know that you're human beings like anyone else. And I know you've suffered like anyone else. But I also have to recognize the pain people feel at your hands, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm just trying to be as open to understand this pain from different perspectives that we can get a complete picture of the war and include including your voices in that is, is important. Kind of way of answering the question and not answering the question. <laughs> because I hadn't resolved it, I hadn't resolved it myself, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a point where you're standing and you're at the end taking a photo with them and you're holding their hand and you're just like, what am I doing? Yeah, absolutely. But just before we finish, what are the next steps for this project? Are you going to be continuing with your engagement within this area? Yeah, I mean, perhaps even before I, I answer that question, I should say like all of this research has only been possible with a close collaboration and much generosity of the Women's Advocacy Network, this network of survivors, and a community-based justice group called Justice and Reconciliation Project who have worked with Women's Advocacy Network to strengthen their appeal to the Ugandan government for reparation. And it's really through this collaboration that new research topics are continuously generated. For example, I don't think I would have ever gone in to researching and trying to understand the perspective of men without their, you know, again, insistence. 
But also through this process of doing research with men, we discovered this extraordinary process that is quietly going on in Northern Uganda, where women survivors are working with former combatants, mostly commanders who had a good knowledge of who was who and who lives where, to help trace the paternal homes of children. So together they come together in the best interest of the child, and they can spend years trying to track down where this commander's family lives and try and unite the child with that family. Now, it comes with all the complications we just talked about, but they become involved in this really, like they're incredible mediators, the Women's Advocacy Network. They're incredibly skilled. And they have this way of bringing people to a common understanding of what happened during the war. They become that forum for settling accounts that the country doesn't formally have. And so they've had this fairly good success rate in being able to bring people to a common understanding and to unite these children at their paternal clan. I think that that process has a lot to tell us about survivor-led justice processes and that a survivor-led justice approach is something just now being recognized as critical on the UN agenda of women, peace, and security. So there is a lot to be learned from this process and in our documentation of it. And I'm really excited to see where the project goes in terms of of thinking about justice also for children born of war. It's a super complicated process, but... It's a very complicated (laughs) process. One thing to to mention as well is that in that process that Erin mentioned, some of them are started by the children themselves. They want to find their father. Right. So that that's also an important thing to, to consider. What does the child want as a survivor, as a victim? What do they want? What do they think of as justice for their situation? So, and maybe I can just, as a final thing, I just like to you know recognize the work of the Women's Advocacy Network and Justice and Reconciliation Project in documenting the stories that we've shared with you today. And in particular, the leadership of Evelyn Amoyne and Grace Chan both survivors of uh, Ellery abduction. Both are, have their own memoirs of that. One's called I Am Evelyn Amoyne, Reclaiming My Life After the LRA. Grace's is called Not Yet Sunset. But the support also of a, an amazing team of youth researchers, Isaac Akui, Boniface Achak, Darkus Etienne, Bernard Akot, and Joyce Abalo. So just really important, I think, in these kinds of research projects, you know, we're a Western audience, we're Western researchers presenting it to recognize that there is a a whole team that are critical to making this happen. Well, thank you to them. And thank you to you, Erin Baines and Camilla Oliveira, for coming on to tell us about it today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ben. Thank you so much. What a fascinating interview, Ben. Quite a lot to think about there. Thanks very much. Absolutely, yeah. And and thanks to Erin and Camille for coming and talking about it. Well, next week we'll be back with two more interviews. Maybe something a little lighter, just as a treat for you guys. But in the meantime... I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston, and you've been listening to Undercurrents.